Residents of Florida are still recovering from the devastating Hurricane Ian, which brought massive storm surges and flood, flood-like rains. We've all seen the pictures, right, of the boats washed in the middle of the housing developments and neighborhoods with homes flattened or inundated with mud. But off the coast of one of Florida's many islands, there was a small bit of destruction with a bigger symbolic meaning. Here to talk about that and other stories from the week in science is Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American right here in our New York studios. Good to have you back, Sophie. I'm delighted to be here in person. <laughs> yes, it's nice to have you. All right, let's let's talk about this. Tell me about the structure, the Cape Romano Dome Home. Yeah, the Cape Romano Dome Home or Dome House was this very cool home. It was constructed in 1982, and it had these six large geodesic domes all joined together to create a house of about 2,400 square feet. And it was designed with that dome shape, particularly because domes are really great at resisting wind. There's nothing for the wind to catch on. Right. So it was great at withstanding hurricane force winds. And in fact, in 1992, Hurricane Andrew hit the area and the inside of the house was trashed, Mm -hmm. but apparently the exterior structure was standing pretty well. But the problem is it was built out on this like spit of land. And as sea levels were rising, uh, it just eroded away. So the house, two of the domes were destroyed uh, by Hurricane Irma, but the other four were still standing in the water with partially partially flooded uh, and then hurricane ian hit and it just destroyed them the rest of the way wow so it was suppo- it was designed to be self-sustaining and survive hurricanes yes yeah it had not- all these cool sustainability things of like gathering rainwater right. it had that dome shape to resist hurricane winds and it would have all been great if it wasn't for the fact that it was just built so close to the ocean that sea level rise really devastated it yeah nature will uh, you know win out on some of these things because we thought that, that as you say this would be impervious to these hurricanes yeah yeah and it was designed to be but it was it was a little hubristic yeah, because yeah. yeah it has now been destroyed but there are also more modern communities that have been better designed for the changing conditions right How did they fare? So there's this very cool community called uh, Babcock Ranch that has been designed, as you say, to withstand hurricanes. So the first thing they did is, unlike the Cape Romano Dome Home, they built inland, 30 miles inland. They've also built in um, these retaining ponds so that when when it's raining heavily, when there's floods, those can get some of the water before it reaches the homes. And then the roads of the development itself are designed to absorb even more water. So if it gets past those retaining ponds, it'll still not cause the kind of flooding that we're seeing in other homes in the state. And it even has other, there's even very cool things like they've they've buried all the power lines underground so they won't get knocked out by idea. the wind. Great they've this they've hundreds of acres devoted to solar arrays. So they're powered by solar power during the day and then they've got natural gas generators to pick up the slack at night and in cloudy conditions. And I'm gushing about it a little bit because <laughs> all that planning paid off. It did. Yeah, they they made it through Hurricane Ian relatively wow. unscathed. In fact, they actually opened up a community center to, re- to, to climate refugees from other parts of the state who had nowhere to go after Ian destroyed wow. their homes. Some good news Some from, good from news. Florida. Let's yeah. move on to another kind of undersea construction. And I'm talking about the mysterious damage to this Nord Stream gas pipeline. 
right? Tell us about that. Do we act, do we still know what happened? Or are we going to still have to find out? So there's a lot of unknowns still. Um, the damage seems to have been caused by explosions that were set deliberately. Um, it's unclear who is responsible for that, and it's also unclear exactly how it was done. But uh, three in three locations, the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines right. have been damaged. Um, and pipelines are designed, especially undersea pipelines, they're designed to resist a lot of damage. You know, they have to be able to withstand a ship's anchor accidentally bonking into them or objects falling, seismic activity on the seafloor. And of course, seawater does not play nice with metal. So corrosion no, no. is a yeah. big, big problem. Yeah. And so despite all of these uh, uh safety measures, the the pipeline was damaged. But luckily, the engineers have planned for that. So they have a couple different options going forward for how they might want to fix the the damaged areas. Yeah, because as you say, what, a submarine or a lot of technology would need, you'd need to cause that kind of damage. Yes. Yeah, yeah this yeah. wasn't, the, the amount of gas that was released suggests that there was like a much more destruction than could be caused by probably a minor accident. Now let's move on to a story that you have this week about possible ways that it might be possible to to repair this pipeline. I mean, do we go down in, in you know, how do we go down? How do we repair this thing? From the inside, maybe? I don't know. So there's a couple options. So one option is just lifting the damaged part up out of the water, and then you take the damaged pipe, replace it with a, a fresh one, and then weld it on where the damaged pipe used to be. And you can do that depending... This all depends on the depth of the water where the damaged area is, right? Like, you right. can't lift uh, something up for hundreds of meters, but you might be able to, to lift it up if it's in a, at a shallower depth. And then the other option is you go down to fix it. So they have these hyperbaric chambers. You're essentially bringing an air bubble with you down to the seafloor where this pipe is, and then you you weld the replacement piece into place while you're underwater. It's like how you build a tunnel, yes, right? Yes. Same kind of idea. Exactly. You, you, you bring it with you. Um, you have a story this week about possible ways that it might be uh, possible to repair those. And the other news you have is that there's an intriguing story about the microbiome and cancerous tumors. I saw this being published, but it's not our microbiome. The tumors themselves have their own bacteria and fungi. They have their own. The tumors have a microbiome. Yes, know? that's amazing. Yes, it's this is fascinating. So researchers had known before that there was an association between bacteria and certain tumors, but they've just done a few really major studies looking at fungi, and they found that specific species of fungi tend to be found in specific types of cancer, and that the type of fungi or the amount of it can be predictive of what's going to happen with that tumor. So for instance. Uh, there's one particular species of, of fungus, um, and it's normally found in pancreatic tumors. Right. But when it shows up in tumors from breast cancer, it's associated with much uh, lower survival rates. So that suggests it could be a predictor of what's going to happen. There's another um, a type, a candida, which is you know better known as the fungus that causes yeast infections. And when that's found in certain gastrointestinal tumors, if it's at higher levels, uh, the it's associated with lower survival rates. Well, could this help then diagnose whether or find hidden tumors? Right, if you look yes. for the fungi. Yes, absolutely. That's one thing that that could it could help with that. It could help sort of indicate oh, more aggressive treatment is needed because the the fungus associated with worse outcomes is present or is there at higher levels. But the thing is, a lot more work is still needed to discover what is going on here in terms of cause and effect. Right. So it's unclear, is the fungus uh, spurring the cancer on, or is the tumor just an environment where this particular fungus can thrive? 
I love that. I love that. That's 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 for tomorrow. We'll we'll find out more about right. that. <laughs> uh, you have a story this week about predicting human behavior and how we measure how people are feeling. Explain explain that to us. Right. So you're probably used to you know rating a restaurant after you eat there, or um, you know something you buy online. You'll leave a rating. The problem is those, as you know, when you're trying to find a good place to eat and looking at how many stars people have left, it's very subjective and it's not, um, it, it's based on people's feelings. And scientists don't love that. So mm-hmm. when economists are making predictions about human behavior, they like to use hard quantitative data like um, G- the GDP of your of a country or what your socioeconomic status is. But a new study did look at the ratings people give for their own life. So they followed a group of 700,000 people over the course of 30 years, and they periodically asked them to rate on on a numerical rating um, how their job was going, their marriages, uh, um, and their health. And what they found was that these ratings, these subjective ratings of squishy feelings, were actually great at predicting human behavior. Wow, that is interesting. And something you're you're keeping an eye on, moving on, is is a court case in Montana involving kids and climate change. Tell us about that, please. Yes, so this is going to be the first case, the first trial heard in court of young people suing the government in the United States. So there's been a couple different, there's been several different lawsuits of specific uh, groups of children suing state governments and also suing suing the federal government. But in June in Montana, they're expected to actually go to court and plead their case. And a lot of kids, if I remember this correctly, a lot of kids have been saying, you know, you're taking our future away from us, right? You yes. Ha- you have no right to do that, right? Yes, they're saying that they're, they're right their rights to, to have a, a healthy life without fearing for the yeah. damage that's been caused by climate change has been compromised by governments continuing to support fossil fuels and other industries that create emissions that spur climate change. So on. this has actually made it to court now? Yes. It's, and we'll have a decision perhaps <coughs> when? It's supposed to go to court next year in June, so next summer. Okay, get your breath on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we have, um, how shall I put this, important news for all the cat owners out there research into how to tell behaviorally if your cat likes you is that actually possible i know cat owner i'm not a cat owner but i know how finicky cats can be can you actually tell if your cat likes you yes not? so your cat. you can <laughs> cats are famously aloof but you can figure out what your cat thinks of you by because your cat treats you as a fellow cat. So if a cat oh. is giving you signals that it gives to other cats when it likes them that's a sign that it likes you so, for example, cats love to rub their scents on things. They have scent glands around their head and neck. So if a cat is rubbing its head against you, it's leaving its scent on you. It's saying, I'm marking you. You know, you're one of mine. Uh, another indication is in the tail. When cats have their tails straight up like a, like a flagpole, right. that's a positive sign. That oh, means they're, they recognize you and they like you. Sometimes they also do a, a tail in a question mark shape. That's another, that's another good sign. And one thing cats love to do is roll over and show their belly to people they like, but they do not want you to pet them there. They're just saying, look, I'm willing to be vulnerable and expose myself to you. Wow. How if you go in for a pet, though, they're probably going to call you. How different than a dog, right? Very Dogs different. Dogs love that. When Dogs you love it. Cats Cats are just <laughs> signaling you, and then you touch them, and they're like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. That's a cat. Thank you, Sophie. <laughs> it was good to have you back. Thank you. So, Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American.